Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards. Thank you for joining me for this episode. And I hope that the title of the episode does not deter people from clicking on this because the term bonds of man rent is not terribly exciting. It's kind of a boring term. However, if we really want to understand the dynamics of the kin-based society in, this, in Scotland during the time period that we generally cover, if you're just joining, this is the first episode you've ever listened to, first of all, um, if it was me, I probably would not have clicked on Bonds of Man Rent because um, it just sounds boring. It's not, I don't think, but um, I would have clicked on something like The Last Clan Feud of Scotland or something exciting sounding like that. But if you did click on this one, this is your first episode, welcome and thank you for doing it. But just so you know, the time period that we're usually covering in this podcast well, we did some some fundamental, uh, some foundational rather, laying the laying the groundwork episodes that took us clear back into the n- not not long after the the Roman period. So, getting into the five and six hundreds, that kind of a time period. But most of the episodes focus on. I would I would say that we're usually between the eleven hundreds and. Up and up, I would say up into the 1700s a little bit. The Culloden is usually as far as we, is as far as we go for this podcast. I'm not I'm not creating any hard boundaries. I retain the uh, freedom of movement throughout the timeline of Scottish history when discussing the clans, but that's usually where we're sitting. So, <clears throat> if you really want to understand the kin-based nature of society in, in Scotland during that time period, the bond of Mandarin, is an important concept to understand, and it really, I believe, will flesh out your understanding of what was going on. If you want to take your understanding of the clans of Scotland from the super surface level, um, yeah, I know a couple of the cool stories and a couple of the major clan names, and you want to go a little bit deeper than that, the bond of Mandarin is an important concept. Now, before I get to the bonds of Manrent, and we dive way into the weeds on that subject. Um, let me just do a little bit of listener feedback here, and I've, I'm actually going to go to a source that I've never gone to for listener feedback before. I'm going to go to academia.edu, and here's here's how I'm getting there. I get emails saying, hey, so-and-so left... So, okay, let me back up. When you go to academia.edu which I have recommended doing in previous episodes, and you want to download somebody's paper, which there are, you can, you can you can download free copies from academia.edu if you have an account, which is also free. A little pop-up window will appear, and it'll ask you if you want to leave a reason why you downloaded something. Now, my master's thesis, which I've mentioned before, was on the comparison and contrast between highland clans and lowland clans, specifically border clans, in the realm of warfare between the approximately 1300 and 1600. And that my thesis is posted on academia.edu, as well as some other papers that I had to write for my master's program, and that which which are not necessarily on even Scottish history, but 
I think that I covered some interesting topics there anyway. So when somebody, but most people go to to academia.edu when they're going there on account of me, they're usually going for that master's thesis on the comparison and contrast with the Highland and Border Clans. And for the, and then some of them, when that pop-up window appeared, actually did leave a reason for downloading that that paper. And this is left by Jeremy M. D. Jager. He says the Highland clans have the most literature and publication written of them, but the Lowland clans arguably were more important and significant than the Highland. Chiefly, they liberated Scotland during the Wars of Independence. These wars were more important to what was Scotland's identity because they enabled Scottish culture to flourish onwards compared to wars simply resulting in its diminution. Monuments and stories exist, namely those of Wallace, Douglas, and Bruce. However, Highland clans still take the limelight due to the Jacobite Rebellion, which is more about religion, driving politics, than the character of Scotland. Many fathers, sons, and brothers fought on opposite sides. Scotland's identity, moreover, only ever was predominantly Catholic before Protestantism, Protestantism existed. I look forward to reading this, chap, this paper and hope to continue to see more written about the Lowland clans. And so, Jeremy M.D. Jager, if you found this paper because of the podcast and you're somehow listening to this, it might be a while before I write in an academic fashion on the Lowland clans again. However, I hope that I have proved to my listeners that I am more than ready and willing to go into the Lowlands for subject matter for these episodes. The last episode was regarding the Elliots, and it was not just exploiting their wild antics as border reavers. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a few others here I could read. Um, some of them, most of them are actually just really simple comments about why they downloaded them, but some people took the time to, um, to actually leave a, a little bit more in-depth reason. Um, here's another one that left a little bit more. This is left by Krista Hazel. Hey, Clint. Followed this link posted by a guy on Scottish Clans and Families Facebook group. Smiled when I recognized the academic author's name. I felt nerdy awesome. <laughs> Thanks for the podcast and the info. For those of us who can't get enough info, much appreciated. P.S. I'm one of the fellow Idahoans that listens. I requested info on the Rose Clan last summer. The research made a 100-year-old woman's birthday and was the talk of the family reunion. Krista, that makes my day to read that. And by the way, this is left a long time ago. This is not recent feedback. I just barely discovered some of these academia.edu responses like this not that long ago because I wasn't looking for them. And, uh, yeah, so this, this is... Some of these people have posted a while ago, but I will say that she, she brings up that she was the one that recommended the Rose Clan, which I actually did a podcast on. And so just to show you that even though some of you may think that your requests for me to do a episode on the, the clan you requested have gone on deaf ears, they haven't. I, I will let you know that one of my huge parameters and, and, and restrictions or limitations on what I do or do not a, an episode on is the material that's available. So um, just not everybody has had 
had a lot of a lot of material written on their clan. Um, that I think is all I'm going to read from the um, from the academia.edu. There were just a couple of them them there that I that I had seen and that had left a little bit more than a one sentence reason, and I thought I'd share with you guys. All right. Here's another one that now I'm going to the Podbean. I'm going to the app for Podbean, but you can, if that's something that a uh, way that you want to access this podcast, you can go to podbean.com and you can leave feedback on there. I believe, I don't know, I've never left feedback for myself. I actually have to go into the app to read and to manage and look through and respond to people. But, um, yeah, anyway, so I'm looking at the app right now, but you can you can access the podcast via podbean.com, just so you know. All right, this is from Gorf. He said, loved it. The deeper backstory was one I didn't know. I descend from George Eliot, Revolutionary War patriot, who moved after the war from Pennsylvania to Henry County, Georgia, where his descendants married into at least seven or eight of my other ancestral families, including two other clans, the Carmichaels and the Farkersons. Pretty cool, Gorf. Thanks for your response. And another one from MJRX97. Hey, dear author, just heard my comment being mentioned in your podcast. Totally awesome hearing that my in hearing that in my earbuds while doing the night jogging during this dreadful corona quarantine period. Guess what runs every jogging session in my ears? Your podcasts. I'd argue your doubt about the Lithuanian-Viking connection, though, since ancient Lithuanians used to raid Scandinavia, also being raided by the Vikings at the same time. My family name came from Sardinia, by the way. I think that's how you pronounce it. S-A-R-D-E-G-N-A, Sardinia. Anyway, thank you for leaving that response. MJRX9 or 7. Also, one from Tosh that I don't believe I've read on here before. He says, Clan Macintosh were first to charge at Culloden. The message from above to charge got lost in the heat of battle, and they took it on themselves to charge, while the other clans were decimated by cannon fire. As they waited for the order to charge, McGillivray led the charge. There were between 400 to 600 Macintosh clansmen uh, fighting the Hanoverians. So, cool. Yeah. Um... That's good information. I didn't know the... I have not studied the Battle of Culloden in depth. I have watched documentaries on it. I have... and So I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head which clans formed which wings of Bonnie Prince Charlie's army and and who charged first and all that stuff. So thank you, Tosh, for sharing that with us. Um, I, I sure didn't know exactly how many Macintosh clansmen were present there. And I wonder if he... When he says 400 to 600, if he means all of them Macintoshes or if we're talking about the clan Hatton, the confederation of clans, of which the Macintoshes were the, the captain of the confederation. At least that was how they styled themselves. I have another feedback from Labelle Rebe- Label? Rebel. Labelle, the, the beautiful rebel. I don't know if we were doing a little spin on words there. I don't know. Labelle Rebel. I love Scottish Independence Podcast. Yes, Cowell in, li- in Indie Live Radio Poetry Open Mic Spot, Week 15. Let's play it. Anyway, that's got to get a plug for somebody else. I wonder why they put it on here. Anyway, you got it, people. There you go. From La Belle Rebel. 
And that's what I got for you today. I have I haven't checked Facebook today, but I've checked it recently. I didn't have anything new on there, but um, um, I do believe that Neil King continues the the conversation on there, and and I really like his his comments. And so I encourage you to go to the Scottish Clans Facebook group group Scottish Clans Facebook group and. And uh, and make your comments on there. Start getting get involved in the conversation there. We got to change the center of gravity away from the Facebook page to the Facebook group. Both both are accessible there. They're both easy to get to. I'm just not um, paying as much attention to the Facebook page anymore because if I'd have really understood Facebook when I made that page, I probably would not have made a page. I would have made a group. But I don't think at the time I even knew that there's a difference. But on the Facebook page, you can't talk with each other. You can send a message specifically to me because I run the Facebook page and I can then share it or bring it up in the podcast, but you can't talk with each other through that page unless you are making comments on something I've posted there, but you can't actually make a, your own comment on there. In the Facebook group, we, it's, I think it facilitates dialogue between not only me and you, but you all with each other. And I think that's a great, something great um, that this podcast, a, a service that we can we can provide, we can get a conversation started, but I'd really like to enable you guys, based on things that you're hearing or learning or something that has to do with the podcast, to then begin talking with each other and creating that dialogue between you all which I think would be very valuable. Anyway, so that's what we're going to do for the comments, the listener feedback today. Now I want to get into talking about these bonds of manrent. So what was a bond of manrent and why are they so important? Okay, so a bond of manrent was, and if you want to, there's a Wikipedia article on manrent. It'll give you like the linguistic background back to Old English on the word and all that stuff. I'm not going to go that far. I will let you know that there is, a, uh, I, I think it's a good Wikipedia article, and it has some uh, something on there that I'll get to in a, in a little while that I thought was a pretty interesting little piece of information and that I used in the creation of this. Now, I will say, before I start defining so much the, um, the getting into the bond of man rent, that I'm taking... I, I didn't base this whole episode on a Wikipedia article. I, I generally don't, unless it's like a story-type um, and it, we're, we're trying to be less academic and more just, hey, here's something cool that happened. And usually I'll still give you the sources that are cited in the Wikipedia article. And generally they do cite the sources there. So let's not be too hard on Wikipedia, although I wouldn't have ever s- cited that it as a reference in my, my academic work. Um, but what I, what I do have, and it was very helpful and informative in this... Um, for for this episode and on this topic was a an article or a paper titled The Dynamics of Manrent in the Lordships of Argyle and Brett Alban circa 1512 to 1560. The author is Jonathan Woods. I did acquire this paper via academia.edu. All right. And so as you can tell by the title of the paper, he is using the Campbells of Argyle as his case study for bonds of manrent generally. What can we learn about bonds of manrent by looking at those made by the Earls of Argyle and Brett Alban? Now, one reason why it's really easy to go to the Campbells on this subject is because they did a really good job of writing things down and keeping records. 
And so if even just the Black Book of Tamath, which is a, a Campbell record, includes many bonds of manner that they made with surrounding kin groups or individuals. They could they could work with both. So let's get to the actual definition. What is a bond of manner? It's a written contract between two parties. It could be individuals or it could be whole kindreds. And usually if we see a bond of manner made by an individual, but that individual happened to be the chief of the kindred of the clan, then we're we're I think we're kind of assuming that it would be binding on the clan as a whole. So there's some overlap here, and we probably shouldn't get too nitpicky unless it was, in some cases, it was an individual who was not the chief of the clan, but he was part of a certain group, but he was accepting another man as his chief. That could happen. Also, Anyway, let me let me not get sidetracked by the um, away from the definition before I've actually made it. The so these two parties are signing a contract. Generally, the two parties are not on equal footing. That would be more a bond of friendship, which which did happen. But the man the bond of man rent was usually between two people of unequal status, and it, it was made. It could be made, and I'll go into more detail on these certain features of it, but it could be made between people who were related or people who weren't related. And it's basically, hey, I'll do this for you and you do this for me. And so let's dive into why would this be an important subject to study if we all want to understand the clans of Scotland. Okay, so one one thing about this, the bonds of man rent is that it allowed flexibility within the clan system. So one thing that I've said before on this podcast, and I want to reemphasize, is that we, we can't put things in their little tidy boxes, and it's all perfectly separated and organized in their little categories, and their little, you know, we've got this clan over here, and their clear territory was this line, because i got a map. It shows all the clan territories, and there's a line. And on this side of the line, it was McPherson territory. On that side of the land was Grant territory. It it wasn't that tidy. And even even when those boundaries were true, it was that that map that I have and that that has been the catalyst for many a train of thought that has led me deeper into studying the clan. So it's very I'm I'm very grateful to have that clan map. But it is, and it's a good starter for learning, but it should not define our understanding of the clans of Scotland. And first of all, it was only accurate, to the extent that it is accurate, it is only so for a certain time period. Now keep in mind, the, the highlands and the lowlands, these, these different kin groups throughout Scotland, they did not maintain these these lines between their territories were not rigid it fluctuated tremendously and there were certain time periods where there was less change and there were certain time periods that were more change one time period and this is a little bit before the bond of manrent period which i'll tell you what that is here in a second one period of huge change which i've mentioned before was the scottish wars of independence and what clans, and I'm not going to, I've in times past I've used the terms wrong side and right side, and I only ever meant that as far as which clan, which or which side won. I never meant that on who had the strongest claim. But whoever was on the 
the losing end of it because there were winners and losers in that big time. And those clans who were not losers but were on the losing side, um, they lost out big. And and conspicuously, the, the Cummins lost massive amounts of territory, which were gobbled up by other clans that were more in favor with Robert Bruce, who displayed their loyalty to him during his rise to power. And so there was a massive change of land ownership. And, and I'm not telling you that everybody changed. Everybody lost land or gained land. And some, some clans held what they had. But um, there was... The, and I'm, and I'm, that's kind of like a side hobby of mine is diving into that. But anyway, and that's just one example of to show you like how much clan territories could change. One clan might fall out of favor with the, governor, with the government, with the king through either, uh, there could be so many reasons. You get into the 1500s, and now you got the Reformation taking place, and now you got a monarch who's Catholic and a clan who is wholesale joined the, the Protestant side, and then you have other clans that, anyway, that could be one way you could, you could fall out of favor. Another way is you could completely act against the interests of the crown. And there's so many numerous examples for that, but an example of, during the Reformation would be, for a brief time period, the, the Campbells were generally on the side of the Scottish monarchs, but they did find themselves on the opposite side of the fence when it came to religion for a time in the, in the mid-1500s. Another clan who fell out of the graces of the monarch because of their actions... Well, basically because they didn't have the right friends in power. We're the McGregors, and this ties back into the Campbell conversation as well. The McGregors fell out of fell out of grace with the with the uh, Scottish monarch, and and now they're and, and you know and, and the the big huge event for them was the Battle of Glenfruin, where they just they got the drop on an advancing um, force made up primarily of the Cahoons. And they laid an ambush for him and just tore into them. Well, the Calhouns, turns out, were acting on government orders. And so that didn't go well for the McGregors, even though the battle was a resounding victory. The aftermath of that battle did not, was not a pretty situation for the McGregors. All right, so, so we, and, and the McGregors lost massive amounts of land. In fact, as you pursue studying about the Campbell of Glen Orkey specifically, okay, to keep in mind, for those of you who are not enmeshed and in, in, in neck deep in clan history, the Campbells were a huge clan, and they had branches of the clan who had developed into pretty significant kindreds in their own right. And the Glen Orkey branch was one of those branches. And they were the ones specifically... Now, there's indications through these bonds of man rent that they had signed with each other, that the other Campbells were in on it, but the Glen Orkey branch was really leading the charge against the McGregors. And this leads me down this train of thought, and I don't think this is a tangent. This is, I think this is relevant to the dynamics of, of clanship within Scotland. Is... is um, why were the McGregors... And by the way, Martin McGregor... His PhD thesis sits right on this on this subject is is right in this. Why were the Campbells of Glenorchy so, so? Why did they hate the McGregors so bad? And I wonder if, because if you look, once again, let's go back to the clan map. 
if you look at the clan map, map, the McGregors don't look like much. They don't hold that much territory. I do wonder, though, if pre-feud with the Glenorchy Campbells, if the McGregors were not a very powerful kindred. And I don't know even if that's in terms of land ownership. I think we might be able to count that more in the men that the chief of the McGregors, McGregor of Glenstray, could bring onto, the, onto a battlefield. The McGregors had a very martial culture. Now, you might be saying, well, duh, they were Highlanders and all Highlanders. That was a very common theme, was the aspiration to deeds of glory in battle by Highlanders. Their, their whole culture was geared around that. Their songs, their stories, like one of the best things that you could do if you were a, a man in the Highlands was prove yourself a man of valor on the field of battle. But even within that context, the McGregors were particularly good at it. And I wonder if they got in Campbell of Glenorchy's eyes too big for their britches. I, and I wonder if we don't know every conversation that took place. Was it just that Campbell of Glenorchy looked at the McGregors and was thinking, God, they've been working for us for so long, but if they really realize how strong they are, they could turn against us in a heartbeat. Kind of like, you know what that reminds me of is, is in Exodus, when there's a new Pharaoh and he doesn't have this history of a relationship with the Israelites. And she says, these people have grown so numerous that if we don't do something here, they could easily rise up with an enemy. And th there's just so many of them that, that their numbers in and of themselves would, would prove a, a disadvantage to us. I wonder if it was something like that or if there was actually heated words that took place between a Glenorchy chief and a McGregor chief. And I wonder if the McGregors maybe showed indication of a self-awareness of their position and maybe made comments regarding that. And if that was the start of an immediate and an aggressive effort on the part of Campbell of Glenorchy to snuff out the McGregors. But this is one of the most aggressively pursued feuds that I've read about in Scottish history. Anyway, that being said, so do we see that the, Campbell, the, the McGregors lost territory in that? And that's an example of, of the fluctuating nature of these clan territories. Or, or it wasn't any kind of a, a feud. It wasn't a transgression against the monarchy. It wasn't sometimes... A clan fell on hard times, and they needed to jettison some property in order to keep solvent. But, and, and maybe I'm using um, terms that, you know, solvent, you know, what, what, I don't know. But <clears throat> they, anyway, they found themselves in debt, and they needed to, they needed to raise some, some capital, and they'd sell off parts of their territory. So just so you know, those clan territories were not fixed. Now, there were some... Let me, I don't want to run away way too far down one train of thought and, and make it sound like the extreme is the normal. There were places that were the seat and territory of certain clans for as long as anybody could remember. The McDonald's had been on Isla a really long time, since there were McDonald's, which we have pretty good records of when that starts. Now, that changes, and the Campbells do gain possession of Isla later on. But, 
It doesn't mean that all McDonald's went away. What's another one? The McPhersons had been in Strathspey for a really long time. So had the Grants. Um, the McKenzies had been in Kintail for a really long time. Anyway, you get the idea that the, the, some of the, these core territories maybe didn't change. And sometimes they did. Okay, so if you're a new, a new landowner... You're the chief of a, of a clan, but you don't, you've acquired new property and you don't have a kin base in that area. How can we, because your, your ability to exercise your lordship over that newly acquired territory is only as good as your ability to enforce it. And what if the kindreds in that area just decide, hey, we don't care if you think you own this land. And there are examples of that in Scottish history. You can probably just go back in earlier episodes and find examples of that. Well, like, let me just throw this out there. When the McDonnell, um, Lord of the Isles, gains the Earldom of Ross. Well, okay, so you've now gained this gigantic tract of mountainous land. But you don't have a strong kin base. And when you summon all of your loyal Hebridean clans to your standard and you're going to go show the people in Ross that you mean business you have to do it by force and guess what the people who already occupied territory there they rose up and and confronted the McDonald's now I don't think it went well and I'm specifically thinking of a campaign during 1411 as the McDonald's made their way across Scotland to sack Aberdeen which they weren't able to do because of the Battle of Harlaw but in route, they and then and this I guess this is yeah this would this I believe the the con the the contest for the Earldom of Ross is right in the middle of all this. Anyway, they don't the McDonald's as powerful as they were did not have a kin base in that area and couldn't exercise their will. Now, <clears> the <throat> fourteen eleven was a little bit before we see bonds of man rent being made. I told you that I would get to the dates here in a little bit. But the bonds of man rent, so let me go back to that Wikipedia article I told you about. And I told you that there's a really cool bit of information on there. Now, they're straightforward about this. They've got a list of bonds made between different clans. They're very straightforward in saying that this is not a complete list. <clears throat> and if they were to put a complete list on here, it would be really long. But they just have some examples on here, and this, these examples are, are interesting, but the, earlier, the earliest one they have on here is 1430. Now, I don't know for sure that that was the first written out, no kidding, bond of man rent ever made in Scotland. But it does show you the, the, the early, it would, 1430 would represent the earlier end of the spectrum uh, of, the, of the timeline where we see bonds of man rent. Now, just in case you're wondering, that was between the, the clan Forbes and the clan Ogston, Ogston, O-G-S-T-O-N. And I have never once ever, in all of my reading about Scottish history and the clans and families, have ever seen the name Ogston. But now I have. And I know that there was some people there who had that name, and they made a bond of man rent with the clan Forbes. Well, okay. So we're looking at fourteen the, the mid the the early mid fourteen hundreds fourteen thirty ish as the earlier end, and we're looking at the last one they have on here is in sixteen eighty one, made between the clan Campbell and the McDonalds of Keppoch. 
All right, so there you have the little cool piece of information that you can find on this Wikipedia article, as well as the time period, roughly, that we're looking at with when we were talking about bonds of man rent. I would say that most of them were made in the 1500s. However, they clearly did not stop then went went way into the 1600s and back much farther into the 1400s on the other side of the time, to the left, if you're looking, thinking left and right are typical Western linear way of thinking. All right, so we have the, um, oh, so so some of the other things that are, that we can learn as we study the, the bonds of man rent. So like I said before, they were made between usually people of unequal status. Also, they could be made between people who were related and people who weren't related. So let's go back to that. Okay, we've acquired new territory in this area. We don't have a strong kin base there. So let's create some alliances. So what a bond of man rent could do is the, the new landowner could sign a bond of man rent with the heads of different kindreds in that area. And it's interesting because even though these, these different parties are not blood-related necessarily, the terms of the bond will be expressed in words of kinship. And this is really interesting as we look at some of these examples. I'm going to go back to um, the Woods article, Jonathan Woods' article that I mentioned before. He, he does not give equal attention to all of the different... He, he doesn't give us a, a running list of all of the bonds that the Earls of Argyle entered into. But one of the really, one, really interesting ones that he does get into some detail on is a bond made between the Earl of Argyle, and I, think, I believe it was the fourth Earl of Argyle, and Calva O'Donnell the son of Manus O'Donnell, chief of the O'Donnell clan of what we now call Donegal, but back then would have been referenced as Tyrconnell, or the land of Connell, who the O'Donnells claimed descent from. So isn't that interesting? So in, and in, this, in this podcast, we've lightly touched on Irish kindreds. And usually that only in as much as they've come into contact with Scottish kindreds. And when we did, if you can go, you want to go back and look at those Galloglass episodes. I did more than one of them. I think I did two or three. That that involved Ireland quite a lot. But this is really interesting. This this relationship we see that within the the Gallic world, that that body of water between. Ireland and Scotland was not an obstacle. That had been traversed. In fact, it was more like a highway than an obstacle. And it's interesting how involved, because some people have painted the Argyles as these dirty, lowland-oriented, non-Gallic, lowland-loving, you know, dirty so-and-so, this... And they get they kind of paint the Campbells as they're they're about mostly lowland anyway. No, the Campbells learned how to operate in lowland circles, but they were at their core Highland chiefs. The in the castle of Inverary, where the Earl of Argyle was seated, his primary residence 
is deep in the Western Highlands. And if you look through the different branches of, of the Campbell clan, yeah, you have some outliers. You've got the Campbells of Luden in the, in the, uh, the southwest of Scotland. And I, I don't know if you want to make an argument that the Campbells of Cotter were lowland. Yeah, the, the, the actual geography levels out as you get right there up to the Murray Firth. And yeah, maybe Scots, the language known as Scots, not Gaelic, but the, the Scots language, was spoken there at a, crept in there at kind of an early date. But I don't think either of those factors really, I don't, I don't know if I'd count the Campbells of Cotter as a lowland kindred. But the, if you look at where, where the rest of the Campbell branches were located, they're deep Western Highland clans. The, and the Campbells were very, a very West Highland clan. And it's, it's interesting because the bonds of Manorant will kind of develop that picture a little bit more. But I'll talk about that later. What I want to get into, though, is that is the, the cultural continuum or continuity between Northern Ireland and Gaelic Scotland. And you can see that with this bond of Manorant that the Earl of Argyll makes with Calva O'Donnell. Now, it's interesting that the O'Donnells were kings of Tyrconnell. It was a kingdom. It wasn't a county in, in the Republic of Ireland. It was a kingdom. And the O'Donnells were the dominant kindred. Yet, in this bond of Manorant between Calvach and the 4th Earl of Argyll. It is, it is not an equal and is not an equal relationship and in the relationship the Earl of Argyll is the superior. He has the upper hand. And when we talk about how between two parties who do not have any blood relation that the, the, the terms that are used are terms of kinship. In fact, in this bond of Manorant the Earl of Argyle agrees to respond and to treat and to protect and maintain Calvach O'Donnell as though he were his own son. Now, you're thinking, what about his dad, who's the actual clan chief of the O'Donnells? Well, it looks like, and I didn't, di I di I didn't dive into this for lack of time real deep, but it looks like there's a rift between Calvach and, Man and Manus, Manus and that Kalvach was looking for a premature ascend, ascendance to the this lordship. So, you know, before he was waiting for his dad to die, it looked like there might have been some strife between the two. Because aside from any political disadvantage, if my son signed a bond of man rent with another guy and they the other guy was saying, I'll be your dad, I would that would break my heart. But, you know, I understand that back in these days, the relationship between father and son wasn't always as, as cozy as we'd like to have it anyway. So you have, this, you have this extension of influence. And so what we see there also isn't, see, the, the, in this case, the Earl of Argyle didn't have any territorial claim to Donegal or Tyrconnell or whatever you call it. He was just extending his influence. And so that was another thing that a bond of man rent can do. So for a new lord of a different a territory where he does not have a kin group, a, a kin base to support, to a, a practical way to be able to operate and to fulfill his function in that area 
was to make these bonds of man rents, kindreds who were there, where they would express loyalty to the new landowner, and he would in turn say, I will protect you, I will maintain you. So basically what the bond of man rent did is it made a clan out of something that wasn't a clan. And so in this way, the, the, the clanship of, or the kin-based society of Scotland became very flexible during this time, the time period where these were used. So the, the relationship between the, the, the superior signing the bond of man rent and the subordinate becomes a clan-based, a clan type of relationship. So usually the terms said something like on the, on the part of the superior, hey, if you fulfill your part, I will protect you, I will look out for you, just like you were members of my own clan. And on the part of the subordinate, they would say, I will be loyal to you. I will, f- I will join with you in your fights. I will side with you in your feuds. I will, pr- I will be loyal. I, I, I'll give you counsel and whatever else I can contribute in the same way that I would give that to an actual chief. Now, keep in mind, and often, often this was an actual chief of his own kindred now turning to somebody else and saying, okay, I will respond to you like you're my chief. Even though I'm a chief in my own right, of my own people, you are now my chief. And they were often expressed in those kind of terms. It's really interesting. And so now we have this clan-type relationship existing between two parties who do not have any blood relationship. Now, like I said, that could be a practical way of actually taking stewardship of an area and, you know, there's there's tons of different, like if you're, hey, I'm going to make you the new sheriff of this area. You know, that's not a, that's not a kin-based position. But now if he's going to be, if he's going to execute law and order, maintain law and order in that area, he's going to need the help of the local kin groups. He, he, he can't just do this unilaterally. All right. And then in the case of the O'Donnells, we see that that wasn't, the Earl of Argyle extending his, he didn't have any claim to lands in Tyrconnell in northwestern Ireland. But he, he did, through this bond of manrent, drastically become a, a dominant influence. He extended his influence into that area. And, he, and then it ends up getting, um, we get some marriages involved with Campbell women, um, and the O'Neills are involved, and there's some marriages there, and the marriages with the O'Donnells. And anyway, there's, there's some things going on. And and the, uh, Woods in his in his article here he quotes Alison Cathcart who you've heard me quote on this podcast numerous times. You see that um, the, the this time the certain time especially the fifteen hundreds in Scotland was a very volatile period, and as crazy and as wild west as sometimes this history sounds to us. It could have been worse had it not been for the bond of man rent. So everybody that I've read that has written about this, so I've got Woods' article here. We've got Allison Cathcart mentions it. Um, Stephen Boardman, in, in his PhD thesis, he, he goes neck deep, uh, neck deep into this bond of man rent thing. And his whole, if I remember correctly, his whole thesis was he used different case studies in bonds of man rent to talk about this. And in every case, they argue that this was a stabilizing factor. The same law and order that could exist within a clan by virtue of the blood 
really or I mean even if it was just perceived it wasn't real blood but it make they thought they were related but within that context the uh, the law and order that could that that could maintain could be extended beyond those who are actually blood related so it was a very useful thing to to see in Scotland may may I just make a maybe a couple more I'm at about 45 minutes so I don't want to go too much longer but I do want to um mention just a couple other observations that I made as I was looking at some of these bonds of man rent. Now, so one is, the, the first one is the bond of man rent could exist, not, not only could exist between people who are related or not related, the bonds of man rent, and I gave you that example between Ireland and Argyle, the O'Donnells and the, and the Campbells there, it, it crossed the highland-lowland divide. And I'm not just talking about where mountains or not mountains are. I'm talking about the cultural divide, which was a real divide between the highlanders and, the, and the, those who spoke Gaelic and the lowlanders who didn't speak Gaelic and, and how big of a deal your language makes and how you identify with people who are like you or not like you. Language is huge. And I'm not saying that that divide didn't exist, but I'm, I am saying that maybe it has been played up as an impenetrable wall separating Highlanders and Lowlanders. One reason I know that that's, it's not that, once again, it's not that clean, is you can look at marriages between the Highland chiefs throughout and the Lowland uh, magnates heads of kindreds from the lowlands, whatever their position was. People, if it, if, if it will give them a political, socioeconomic leg up, it seems like all of a sudden that divide isn't that big of a deal. Now, keep in mind with the Earls of Argyle, they had already proved language and otherwise very capable of operating in lowland circles, even though they were, once again, highland. They, they were highlanders. But... It, they they were very adept at moving in lowland circles, and so for them to mesh and mingle and then to take in women from lowland kindreds as brides was not did not seem like that was caused them much heartburn. And it, it wasn't just the earls of Argyle though; there were other very very Highlandish. They're very Gallic. But they were still they were still marrying with Lowlanders. So that's one reason I don't think that. But the other, you can see the bond of manor. The bonds of man rent tra uh, traverse that line frequently. Now let me give you one another clan, another major major very powerful clan that was conspicuous in this, and that's Clan Gordon. Now <clears throat> you got to be careful when looking at bonds of manor with Clan Gordon, if you're looking at this con if you're looking at this in the context of Highland versus Lowland, because sometimes. It'll say, oh, well, say the, the Gordons made a bond of manor with the Mackays. Well, yes, the Gordons did, but which Gordons? Because as I've outlined in previous episodes, the Gordons are a very interesting clan. But you have a younger son of the Earl of Huntley. Now, keep in mind, the chiefs of all the Gordons, whatever branches they were, the chief of all them was the Earl of Huntley, later the Marquess of Huntley. One of his younger sons that did not inherit the earldom married 
the only heiress to the earldom of Sutherland, and their posterity became the earls of Sutherland, and eventually they would uh, adopt the Sutherland name, eventually. However, they didn't do that right away, and so you have Gordons who are who have actually taken up the leadership of the Sutherland kindred and have inherited the earldom of Sutherland. And so those, and now, and we typically look, and if you, and once again, I'm just, I, I understand the, the superficiality of this, this, the, where this, that this argument rests on, that, but Wikipedia, will, if you log into them, if you, if you not log in, but if you go see the, their article on the Earls of Sutherland or the Clan Sutherland, they'll identify the Clan Sutherland as a Highland clan. And I only bring that up is because is in the way that the Sutherland clan is perceived as a Highland clan. And now, but, but you have Gordons as the chief. So when you see this, when you're saying, oh, the Gordons, Lowlanders made a bond of manrent with Highlander Mackays or whatever other Highland clan. Well, that was really what I would call a Highland branch of the Gordons. The Gordon Earls of Huntley were a Lowland kindred. But they had a very close tie, clear up until, I would say, the second half of the 1600s, where we see religion possibly dividing. Maybe it was even into the 1700s. I'll have to go back and check my notes, but we see we see one side not wanting to identify with the religious side of the other. And so, But up until that point, you have a pretty close relationship so that you had the, the Gordon Earls of Sutherland are a highland branch of what is generally a lowland kindred, the Gordons, a lowland clan. And I don't, I don't mind using the word clan when talking about lowland kin groups. So just got to be careful there. The Gordon Earls of, of Sutherland, that, that they weren't transgressing any highland lowland line because they do really become leaders of a highland kindred and, an, and inheritors of an earldom that lies basically in the highlands. And I'm... There's so many problems with breaking what is Highland and not Highland down, but I'm not. That's a different. Maybe that's a great idea for a future episode. Anyway, the when, but when you see the Gordon Earls of Huntley making a bond of man rent with, let's say, the McPhersons, which they did. The McPhersons are a very solidly Highland Gallic kindred. You see this crossing of the line there, which is interesting. And, and that would not be the only involvement in the... It, it's very interesting. The Gordons are a very interesting kin group, very interesting clan, because they seem to be very Highland-oriented for Lowlanders. Very, very Highland-oriented, very involved. And it doesn't just... And I'm not just saying just the, the part of the Highlands that comes into their property that, that they... That the, Earldom of Huntley borders into and maybe extends into a little bit. No, we see them involved very far into the Western Highlands. Very, very far into the Highlands. And you can pick that up if you go back into further, back in previous episodes. You'd be able to pick up that involvement. So, anyway, that's the thing that the Bonds of Manorant can show us is that dynamic. So, let's go back. You're just looking at your Scottish clan map and you see, oh, the Gordons are over here. And maybe you look and, oh, the Wikipedia article says the Gordons were a lowland kindred. And, oh, well, what the bonds of Manrent show us is it wasn't that simple. And that this 
group over here was very involved in over here. And they may not have owned territory here, but they were tied in through marriage and bonds of manrent here. And they had extension and influence. And, and there's just, you really start to see, and, and I guess don't get rid of the clan map. But that clan map will come alive as you, as you understand the bonds of manrent. And the, and the way that that shaped the relationship between the different clans of Scotland. And I've just, just, just touched on this, this, uh, this subject as I prepared for this podcast. And a lot of that was because I was on academia.edu and found this article by Jonathan Woods. And I thought, oh, there's some interesting stuff here. And yeah, I do think this would be important. And maybe I will make an episode out of this. And, and so there you have it. But I, I look forward to the opportunity to dig a little deeper into this because I feel like my understanding of this subject that I'm so passionate about has really, I think it's enhanced my understanding. It's really given it some depth that it did not have before. And so I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. Did I, did I include every single thing that I had prepared? No. Did I cover this on a doctorate level? I sure didn't, but hopefully I've just introduced a concept to you that is that is going to help you understand your relationship. You know, if you're so, if you have ancestors or or even your own surname. See, for me, I have to go back in my family tree to find the the Scots, both Highland and Lowland. The Edwardses came out of Wales, which I'm very proud of, but I haven't. That hasn't quite gripped my imagination like like the Scot Scottish clans have. But maybe your last name is Mackenzie or Gordon or what, you know, Mackay, Sutherland, Sinclair, whatever, whatever it is. And you're doing, you're trying to really understand who your ancestors were. Because I know some of you, just by some of the comments you've told me, you want to dive into this on an academic level. If you really want to do that, I really recommend not only learning about just the general history of your clan, but can you find bonds of manrent? And I bet you, if you're able to find bonds of manrent that that your ancestors have entered into, that'll be pretty educational. Like I just learned the McFarlands. I, I learned this on this Wikipedia article. And the McFarlands are my, I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but some of you haven't been there for those. My tie to the Scottish Highlands is through the McFarlands. Well, guess what I saw on this Wikipedia article about the bonds of manrent? That in 1545, Hugh, master of Eglinton, Hugh Montgomery, entered into a bond of manrent by Dun Duncan, or Dunacha in Gaelic, uncle to the Laird of McFarlane at Irwin. Well, isn't that interesting? So now I've got all these questions. Why would the McFarlands be entering into a bond of manrent with the Montgomerys, who are a clan whose main territory was south of Glasgow? Isn't that interesting that we see that that divide? Now I'm now I'm curious. Now I'm going to dive into this a little bit more, and I'll understand my ancestors, or at least you know I don't I don't I I have not found exactly where I tie into this clan, but um I I just kind of identify them as mine, and I'm going to do that until I prove it otherwise, or or until I confirm it through through documentary proof. But Anyway, that's just that's an example from me, and I hope that this subject will add some depth and flesh out your understanding of your own ancestors as you study the, the clans of Scotland. Let me just tell you something new going on. That's, that's what I've got for that. Um, 
so I'm just in case this person is listening. I mentioned several podcasts, uh, several episodes ago, that a listener had contributed. Now I don't have. I look. I really am. I know I've been threatening to do this for a long time, but I really am going to monetize this podcast. But, and <laughs> completely unrelated to that, I had a listener donate money to me personally. Said, hey, use this to help you out with the podcast or whatever else you want to. I'm just trying to do something good here. Well, I'm not going to mention this person's name, but if she's listening, yeah, it was, so I've narrowed it down. It's a female. Um, if she's listening, I want her to know that I've almost figured out what I'm going to do with that money. I've, I've got that, and I had a little uh, money come in that was unexpected from another angle. And if I put those two things together, I'm going to be able to get myself a podcasting um, equipment packet, equipment bundle. I'm going to go through Amazon and I've been trying to, I'm still just kind of in the, when I buy, when I spend this much m- money on something, I really research it. Like if I buy a new rifle, oh my goodness, I exhaust it. If I buy a new backpack, backpacks are something I feel very passionate about. I use them all the time and I can just, if I go into an outdoor store, I can nerd out and just walk through backpacks for a long time. Because there are certain things I've become very specific and particular about with backpacks. Well, I'm kind of going through that with this this podcasting equip uh, tech bundle, and I'm really just want to make sure that I get what's best for my money. I think I have I have a very strong candidate right now. I'm about ready to pull the trigger, and so it's gonna it's gonna this is gonna allow me to have guests on the podcast. It'll improve the sound quality. I've been using a ten dollar mic that you plug into the earphones jack of the computer that you can clip on your shirt. That's what I've been using this whole time. I'm going to actually get a podcasting microphone and, and uh, I can't remember some cables and some other stuff that you need. But anyway, I'm, I'm excited to do this and partly made possible by a kind donation from a listener. So I really, really appreciate it. And I just want you to know that that's, that's moving forward at this time. So I'm excited. I'm excited. So as we get ready to wrap this up, let me leave you with a traditional call to action. Would you please share this podcast with somebody that you think would be interested in it? Would you please engage in the discussion? Get on the the Facebook group. Go to Podbean. Go to the Apple Podcast reviews. Leave me as many stars as you can give me and still look at yourself in the mirror with with no problems <laughs> and then and then write a comment in with that review so don't just don't just do the star thing actually leave me a written review and and I, I check that stuff and I know I don't report on it as religiously as possible and and everything just just because I haven't brought it up I want you to know just because I haven't brought it up in the podcast doesn't mean I haven't seen it read it taken it to heart move forward so I appreciate that so once again Facebook group Apple Podcasts podbean.com or the app you can interact with me through those means and through the facebook means you can interact with each other as well as listeners and as enthusiasts of scottish history so until the next episode comes out marsh and lave andrasta goodbye for now <laughs>